Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this, the 10th and sadly last of the Rare Book School summer lectures. And um, we have saved one of the very best for the last. Uh, Sarah Werner uh, reached the high point of her career in 2007 when she came and took a rare book school class. Uh, that, that, that class was teaching the history of the book and I was her classmate and um, I, was, I was impressed with her then but had no idea the great heights that she would go on to. She got her BA from Bryn Mawr and a PhD from the, the magnificent English program at the University of Pennsylvania in 1996. And I say magnificent not only because of its incredible ranking, but also because of the, the book culture at UPenn is truly remarkable. And in particular, the material text seminar that was adverted to um, last week is again very prominent in, in Sarah's own work. Um, Sarah worked at the Folger Shakespeare Library from 2006 to 2015. She was outreach coordinator, she was undergraduate program director, she was digital media strategist. Um, and all this while she was at the forefront of education in book history for uh, college undergraduates and also uh, editing and producing an extremely successful blog, The Collation, that um, has attracted wide audiences and I think won many people over to the power of book history in humanistic research. Her publications include Shakespeare and Feminist Performance, Ideology on Stage, which was published in 2001. Um, an edited collection called New Directions for Renaissance Drama and Performance Studies. Um, she she uh, is the textual editor for a forthcoming edition in the Norton Shakespeare of Taming of the Shrew. Uh, she has a number of important essays, the two most important in my view being where material book culture meets the digital humanities in the Journal of Digital Humanities in 2012. And I think this is one of the most uh, useful things that has been written on the subject. But a lot of you will know her essay with Matt Kirschenbaum on digital scholarship and digital studies, the state of the discipline. So uh, she and Matt Kirschenbaum of the Rare Book School faculty wrote this extensive review of the current state of digital scholarship, a moving target and an extremely difficult task. And um, I have assigned this uh, a number of times and students have found it incredibly illuminating way to get uh, a purchase on a very, very difficult field. Um, it is a real pleasure for me personally to welcome Sarah back to Rare Book School, and uh, please join me in welcoming her this evening. Thank you all. It is really it's a joy to be back here, and it's especially fun to be back here during boot camp week. 
because um, the last time that I was here was in Desbib. So those of you who are um, taking a brief break from doing your homework, it's nice to have you in the room. Um, I will start with a quick definition of social media for those of you who um, might not be entirely familiar that you're using the term in the way I'm using the term. Social media is a platform for sharing almost anything, images, text, sound, with other people. Um, things like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, blogs, Tumblr, Snapchat. It often has a reputation as being a place that is purely trivial, where people talk about what they had for breakfast. It can be that, but it can also be a place to foment political and social revolutions and to find like-minded people on the other side of the globe. I'm here today not to talk about those things, but to talk with you about how to use social media to kill special collections. The first thing to know is that plenty of special collections are already a presence on social media. The Special Collections Plus Social Media Wiki lists approximately 185 institutions on Twitter, 115 Tumblrs, and 170 blogs in this field, numbers that don't include individual librarians, researchers, collectors, and dealers. Whether you like it or not, social media is out there, and we need to think about its impact. So with that preface out of the way, let's look at how you, too, can destroy special collections with social media. Step one. The single most important way to kill special collections with social media, do not have any images that anyone can share. Keep them locked up tight. How do you achieve that goal? First, don't digitize anything. This is the pathway to danger. I'll share a little story about this with you. Last summer, I was lucky enough to be visiting London and to get a tour of Lambeth Palace Library. This was one of the perks of being a staff member at the Folgers. You suddenly found that people would invite you backstage of all sorts of places. And that's a wonderful place. We had a great tour. We met some wonderful librarians, had a lovely time. And while I was hanging out in the reading room, waiting for my friend Adam to do some actual research, as opposed to me, I was just playing, I was paging through this gorgeous book on their collection treasures. And I came across this astonishing image. It's a 1537 primer, extra illustrated with images sewn in and marked up with deletions. I love the little I know about this book, what it shows us about how people used their books. Fast forward to this summer, when I've been trawling through digital collections, looking for things I want to include in a website I'm creating to accompany a handbook I'm writing about how early modern books were printed. I remembered this Lambeth Palace primer and wanted to include some images of it. I know the images exist because, look, there are two of them right there. I just need to find them. First up, the Lambeth Palace Library website. Now is not the time to talk about the principles of web design and optimizing content, although I have a lot to say on that subject. I'll simply say here that I couldn't find anything like a digital collection under services or about collections or anywhere else. I did find a link to Bridgman Art Collection, which turned out to be a for-profit management system for licensing images. Perhaps some of you have had to use them to get images from. Lambeth is there, 
and the image of the nursing Mary is there as well, but I wasn't interested in buying a commercial license for my non-commercial site. So I went back to Lambeth's site and decided out of an insatiable curiosity to look at their digital exhibits, even though I wasn't finding the digital collection I wanted to. But there, in an exhibit called With a Little Help from Our Friends, which is a lovely, actually, exhibit about exhibitions, um, about acquisitions, was my book with a link to click for full-sized image, and voila, there's the opening from that awesome book. It's so great. Look at that stitching, and you can sort of see some of the X's showed out. It's just a beautiful little thing. Alas, the library's terms state there are fees for using the image for anything other than research or private study, so I'm afraid I still won't be including it in my site after all. But that brings me to an important aspect of locking up your images. If you're interested in killing special collections and you do make the mistake of digitizing them, make sure you make it impossible for anyone to share those pictures. Luckily, there are so many ways to make it impossible for people to share your stuff. One straightforward option, which is the one that Lambeth took and here illustrated by the Newberry, is to avoid putting images online and to charge for their use. If I can't find something in your library, I'll go somewhere else to get my special collections fix, leaving yours to wither from disuse. A more diabolical approach is to do what the Vatican does. Put it all online and then assert all possible rights over it, telling people that they cannot reproduce them in any form whatsoever. This statement was particularly um, jarring and upsetting since the Bodleian and the Polanski Foundation Digitization Project, which is digitizing um, earlier works from both of their collections, the Bodleian stuff uses uh, um, a much more um, permissive license where you can actually share things for it. On the other hand, you could, like the Morgan, allow the use of images for personal, educational, or non-commercial use. Or you could even recognize, as the Harry Ransom Center does, that reproductions of two-dimensional works in the public domain are themselves in the public domain, and users can do whatever they want with them. You will find very few special collections that are willing to make that statement. Most of them make it, at best, by emissions. Of course, if your aim is to stifle special collections, this approach is probably not the one you should take. Licensing and copyright aren't the only tools at your disposal to make things difficult. Sometimes just forcing people to use your website can be enough to discourage them. <laughs> I found this image through the Bodleian's new digital repository, recently unveiled to great fanfare, and it's wonderful in lots of ways. This is a picture of Napoleon being terrified of Great Britain, perhaps because he doesn't understand their libel laws or their odd websites. <laughs> I came across it while browsing through the Bodleian's digital collections and their Curzon collection of political prints. Ah, I thought to myself as I was going through the search results, I wonder what's going on here. And so I opened up the image so I could zoom in and see greater details. It turns out that he's actually terrified of England's army, not of their libel laws. Hmm, I thought, I'd like to download this image. Maybe I can use it for something. I'll just click on, um, on 
and there doesn't seem to be any option on this page for downloading the image. Yes, I could right click it and save it, but I wanted a larger size and I wanted to download the associated metadata with it because I'm fussy like that. Alternatively, we could imagine that I had no idea about the right click option, which I'm sure some of you know is not uncommon among library users. In any case, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing a download option on the earlier view, so I'll just click on that handy back link right up at the top next to the image title and I'm back at the previous page, but I'm not back at the earlier image. But if I have the patience to scroll through, I can eventually find it and download it so that I could share it with you. And you can see at the top there, I could email it to myself and there's the little download link. So that was a bit tedious. Equally tedious was getting a URL to share. As you might have noticed, I like to put URLs in these pages and eventually all these slides will go up on my website and you can click on them and I don't know, you know look at the images yourself. Um, getting a URL to share required cutting and pasting it from the address bar, which generated an ugly, but in their defense, stable URL you see here. Alas, because I'm a good citizen, I went to check the digital bodyland's terms. And I see that they claim copyright over this and all images on their site, and that I'm only allowed to use it for the non-commercial purposes of private study, research, criticism and review, or teaching and instruction, but only within an educational establishment. So I'm good for this presentation, but on less happy grounds when it comes time for me to post this on my blog. So that was a lot of work, even for something that was digitized and shareable. But what's the payoff, you might be wondering, for letting people, um, for letting pictures of your stuff be shareable online? Is it worthwhile making sure your special collections materials are circulating on social media? Here's another story that might answer that question. The Folger, some of you might know, has a binding image collection full of detailed pictures of all sorts of binding features from a wide collection of books. It's a pretty interesting resource, and if you haven't spent some time with it, I recommend that you do that. Some time back, the Folger hosted a conference about bindings, and a number of participants were tweeting about the conference and this resource. Because of these tweets, Eric Quackle, a Dutch medievalist and book historian, was looking through the database and this book caught his eye. What he wondered was that manuscript being reused as fly leaves here. After some close examination, he realized it was a 12th century copy of a medical text, a copy that he believes is an unusually early one. Eric got in touch with the Folger and then, after some Twitter and email correspondence, walked me through his identification. The result of this open collection shared through social media, an updated record for the book, and a blog post sharing his identification with all who use it. Not a bad payoff. But our task is to bury special collections, not to praise social media. When you worked at a Shakespeare institution, you have to occasionally make fake Shakespeare jokes about any case. <laughs> Step two for killing rare books and manuscripts with social media? 
turn everything into lulls in mere decoration. This spring, there was something of a kerfuffle among medievalists on Twitter about a fairly new account called Medieval Reacts. The short of it was that this is an account created and run by a kid, like 19-year-old kid, it might, even, might not even be 19, that gained incredible popularity through a network of accounts that helped push out each other's content. It has an insane number of followers, and like other professionally viral accounts, was designed with the purpose of making its creators money. What got the goats of medievalists, however, was their clear sense that medieval reacts was simply ripping off their tweets. The images they had found were being taken with no credit by this money-grubbing hack. People were really angry about it. And clearly, that is a large part of what medieval reacts is doing. He wasn't going around visiting libraries or digital collections and scouring images for funny pictures. He was scraping images off other accounts and attaching new jokes to them. The tweet on the left, the one from Zwader Masters, preceded medieval reacts by only a handful of minutes. It seems really quite clear that that's where he got his picture from. I'm not actually sure that either of those jokes are funny, but that, that's sort of a different. I'm now just looking at it thinking like, well, I don't really understand them. Um, now, I have no fondness for accounts like these. I wrote a long screed that hit a chord with a lot of people about the horrors of history pics and other tweet or accounts like that that take images and recirculate them without crediting the institutions and individuals who made them available. But how different is what Medieval Reacts does from what so many academics do on Twitter? Here's another medieval manuscript with a funny caption. It's good to know he took his shoes off first. I guess that one's sort of funnier. There's a woodcut with a funny caption. It takes a lot of effort to get a bee in your bonnet. A photograph with a funny caption. There's a million fur-jacketed duos on roller skates out there. What you guys need is a hook. Be right back. Have to go learn Greek. That would be me, of course. Silly jokes are funny, and I like funny, as evidenced by the fact that I can't resist these sorts of tweets either sometimes. But none of these really add much to anyone's knowledge of these works or create much interest in them beyond these individual pecs. At least these four examples include citations for what's being shown, either through links in the tweet, text added to the image, or, um, in the case of my tweet, um, the inclusion of flags with call numbers. But what about those that don't include any sort of citation? Clerk places ink pot on Trinity College admissions book in 1710. This, he was told, is why we can't have nice things. I actually think this one is hilarious. I really do. I think it's a, a, a smart way of making connections that people want to make between today's internet culture, this is why we can't have nice things, and earlier information technologies with the ink pot and the ledger. And the tweet resonated. You can see it got retweeted in favorite. I was one of the ones who retweeted it. But should it have included some sort of citation for the manuscript? Would a researcher quote a book and not cite it? Yes, but should they? No. Why are pictures any different? 
Here's an Instagram that seems to provide a citation. Bell's edition seems like it could lead you to an identification. If you don't know that Bell's editions of Shakespeare are so numerous as to be nearly uncountable, and in any case, this isn't that Bell, but Robert Bell. The pitfalls of the relationships between PR departments and special collections is the subject for another day, but this one, from an account that's run by the PR folks as opposed to the Folger account that's run by the librarians, shows one potential problem of an institution outsourcing social media to someone who isn't a librarian or who isn't knowledgeable about the collections. It's not actually that hard to create tweets of visually interesting objects that help readers understand what it is and why it's interesting. Here's Eric again, who usually does a great job with this. I recommend following him if you like medieval stuff. Um, with a great picture and a tweet that's more than just a joke. Great woodcut in early print, 1497, shows female reader in impressive looking library. That's not something you're finding often in printed books, and then he gives you the citation for it. Lambeth Palace Library's tweets, despite my um, earlier criticism about their platform and policies, Lambeth Palace does a great job of being institutionally on target, informative, and providing citations. Today, the church remembers Margaret of Antioch, martyr, fourth century, image from Lambeth apocalypse, and it gives you the shelf mark. And this tweet from Coffee and Donatus is just gorgeous, along with being informative a peek at some manuscript fragments used in the binding of Pico's Latin grammar. And if you follow them, you know that images watermarked Coffee and Donatus, which is hard to see when it's blown up, but it's right there down at the corner, um, actually come from a private collection, so the lack of an institutional citation here seems to me entirely appropriate. Toronto's Fisher Library here posts a lovely picture with a caption that is funny and informative. They joke about making guacamole. Um, they're actually, they're one of my favorite library Instagram accounts. So if you're curious about what sorts of things special collections can do on Instagram, they're worth following them. And it's a lovely little picture. The tension between wanting to be funny and appealing and spending a lot of time on things that aren't informative is rampant in the current obsession with book gifts. This gif of a children's book illustration shows what I mean. What does the animation in the gif add to this other than being eye candy? Is it a useful expenditure of time and effort? I hope the person who made this had a great time. But I also hope, I mean really, it's a, it takes a lot of time to do stuff like that. I'm actually really bad at it, so it takes me much more time. But even if you're good at it, it takes, um, it takes effort. And I would hope that an institution would think about whether the investment of resources in this type of activity meets their institutional goals. At least the link in the Tumblr brings you to the full digitization of this book, so you can find out more about it, but Southern Miss claims that this digitization is under their copyright and you need their permission to do anything with it. They're wrong. Gifts can definitely be useful. This, from Wisconsin-Milwaukee's special collections, does a great job of showing how this artist's book works. It would be much harder to explain it in words or to show in a series of static pictures the experience of reading this book about Golda Meir. 
This, from the University of Iowa, is even better. By creating a GIF, they've recreated the experience of using this book in a way that you simply couldn't do with a physical object anymore. Much too fragile. With flip books, you've got to flip them, right, in order to show the pictures. Are you going to take an 1897 book that is not in the best of shapes and flip it? Not if you're going to want to be let into that collection again. This is a great example of how gifts can allow us insight into books while at the same time being entertaining and informative. So when it's easy to use Twitter and social media for laughs, why would you want to use it for anything else anyway? Is it possible that it's more than lols? Here's a quick example of its value from a researcher familiar to the rare book school community. Claire Byrne came across an unfamiliar stamp in a 17th century playbook. So she snapped a picture of it, thanks to the Folgers self-service photography policy, and turned to Twitter for help in identifying it. I feel like I should pause for a moment to let the Provenance folks like race through their brains of like, how, how, would I, how would I know what that is? Luckily for Claire, Mitch Frost, a curator at Penn, saw her tweet and identified it. It's a postmark from the 1670s used in the London General Post Office. And he shared further resources for researching it. Not shown here is that this conversation was joined by another early modernist for whom it sparked new questions about how playbooks were circulated. The idea of having one of these playbooks that we so venerate now and dropping it in the mail? It's not in an envelope, right? Like this got dropped in the mail and that's why the postmark stamp is on it and it got sent off to wherever it was getting sent off to. Um, it's really, because I started off as like a drama person, it's really kind of exciting. <laughs> By conducting this reference query in public, not only did a researcher have her question answered, it opened up new possible avenues for exploration for others. That's a pretty powerful reference desk. So far, we've learned to kill special collections by locking down their images and by treating it as a source of jokes and pretty pictures. Now we come to the third and hardest one to wrestle with. The third important aspect of killing special collections with social media, if you want to kill it successfully, focus your energies on counting things that can be numerated. Social media makes it ridiculously easy to count the popularity of your post. The number of clicks, faves, retweets. This was a really disappointingly unpopular tweet that I tweeted. I don't know why more people weren't excited about the Huntington and the digitized collections. It's just sad state of the world. Counting page views, sessions, the number of new and returning visitors, how many likes and comments are on every post we share. The social aspect of social media revolves around the idea that numbers count and that we want as many eyes as possible in front of it. It's not just that finding these stats is easy, but that the ease of counting popularity is addictive. I won't ask how many of you might be on Twitter and how many of you might refresh your notifications to see if more and more people have liked what you've done, but I know you have. But is there such a thing as too much counting? <laughs> is it healthy for us to be chasing those hits 
Does counting the countable actually move us closer to what's good for special collections? It's easy to be on social media because other special collections are doing it. It's easy to, whoops, I'm sorry. It's easy to count your success by the measurements that your PR folks use. But it's also easy to find yourself overwhelmed by those metrics, by the need to obsessively count and report. And their goals aren't necessarily our goals. Not all PR is good PR, especially when it comes at the expense of time and budget lines that could be spent on doing other things that are crucial to the functioning of special collections. Rather than starting with how popular accounts are, maybe we should start with asking what your goals are for social media. Is it to bring people into your reading rooms? Is it to bring targeted groups of readers into your collections? This is actually a, um, an undergraduate I taught in the uh, Folgers former undergraduate program. It's a lot of outreach to read undergraduates and bring them into your social collections. Is your goal to give readers a peek into what goes on behind vault doors in the hopes of sparking their interest in what they don't normally see? Do you want to illuminate the work done by conservators and perhaps inspire a better appreciation for the handling of rare materials? Do you want to introduce staff so that readers will feel more comfortable consulting them? Anyone who has worked a reference desk knows that readers can be weirdly reluctant to ask for assistance even when they obviously need it and you're sitting right there smiling at them. But perhaps Daryl's familiarity, this is Daryl Grain, makes patrons of, the, patrons of the special collections at St. Andrews readier to seek him out because they know who he is because they read him on the blog. Do you want to alert people to new resources or to engage their help in creating them? All of these are important goals. None of them are incompatible with high page counts and faves, but they're not necessarily aligned with them either. A post that gets only 300 views might not be hugely popular, but it could be hugely helpful for the 300 viewers who learn more about an obscure part of your collection. Special collections are full of objects that are unique and unfamiliar and, in today's world, weird and exciting. It's part of what makes special collections specials. And if we want them to grow into the future, we need to be able to help people know where they are and that they're welcome. So we know what not to do. What can we do to grow special collections with social media? Digitize your collections and share the images with open access licensing on platforms that make it easy to find and to link back to your collection. Educate your audience about why things are interesting instead of teaching them to laugh at the past. If the past is just something that we laugh at, there's no reason to have special collections. There's no reason to have history. We all know better than that. And three, think about your aims for social media and don't mistake click rates for engagement. Thank you.